Our second Bible reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. This is what Scripture says. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a talking God, that you speak to us. And we pray, our Father, that you would continue to speak to us in our service this morning through the reading of your word, through the teaching of your word. And Father, we pray now that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Well, I'd like you to imagine, if you will, that you're a Jew living in Israel, or more particularly in Judah, in about the year 460 B.C. So a good 450 to 460 years before the birth of the Messiah, the Christ. Now in 460, mid-5th century BC, Judah is not really a great place to live. The Babylonian exile had ended some years earlier, and the first wave of captives, Jewish captives, had returned to Judah from the land of Babylon. But things weren't going well. They tried to start the rebuilding of the temple, but they just couldn't get it done. They were intimidated. They had other priorities. They tried to start rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, but that didn't happen either. Finally, though, in about 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt at the urging of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. But it never regained the glory that it had in, during the great, uh, the great temple of Solomon's day. It just simply paled in comparison to that temple. And Jerusalem itself lay in ruins, its walls broken and inhabited only here and there by squatters. Agriculture had not rebounded after the exile. Economic recovery was hampered by drought and by pests that attacked the crops. Poverty was widespread in 460 B.C. And politically, well, things weren't much better. Judah was just a minor province in the great Persian Empire, so subject to Persian oversight. And there was a kind of spiritual distress in 460 as well, spiritual decline, if you will. The priesthood was corrupt. Worship was not heartfelt. There was skepticism, and there was widespread disaffection with faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in 460 B.C., remember, you're living in a preliterate world. 
any news that reaches you comes only and exclusively by word of mouth. But news does reach you. News that a prophet has arisen, a spokesman for God. Now you're not anywhere near where this prophet is speaking, and word comes only the word of the prophet comes only by word of mouth, and you hear bits and pieces of his message. And some of what sticks in your mind are these words. This is all that you recall what the prophet said. Remember, the prophet is speaking for God, so this is what God says, and this is what you remember. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the words you hear. And those words create in you and in your family members and close friends, people in your community, a mixture of hope and fear, anxious expectation, anticipation. The prophet's name is Malachi. And after he prophesied, the people hoped and prayed and waited for this Elijah figure to come. The years went by, messianic fervor intensified, and then suddenly, like a cannon blast, Mark's gospel opens, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The beginning of the good news, the gospel, is news of Jesus the Messiah, the spreading of a message about him. News, again, that would have been passed on by word of mouth in a largely preliterate world. Now, friends, this first verse signals to us that what follows, however full of suffering and sorrow, is not bad news or tragedy, but good news. Good news about Jesus. The gospel for Mark lies in the story to come, its words and events. This first verse also reminds us something very important, and that is that what we proclaim to the world is not an idea, it's not a doctrine, it's not a set of rules, it's not even a moral way of life. No, what we proclaim to the world is Jesus, a man who came from heaven to set all things right, to fix that which is broken, to forgive sin, and to open the way to eternal life for all who believe. What we proclaim to the world is Jesus, and the gospel is the story of that one life that explains the stories of us all. Now let's look at the text a little more closely, and we can divide it up in the following way. Verses 1 through 8 focus on preparation for the coming of Jesus, while verses 9 through 13 focus on the preparation of Jesus himself. In other words, the people had to be prepared for his coming 
and he had to be prepared for the work that God had called him to. And so we'll look first at preparation for the coming of Jesus. Now you can see from these first three verses of the Gospel that Mark locates the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah in the prophecy of Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. So though Jesus' coming is a new thing, it was not unanticipated, it was not without advance warning, it was not an afterthought on God's part. It was something for which God had planned and prepared during the long years of the Old Testament. Now the quote from Isaiah is not all from Isaiah, it's actually a composite quotation. This was really picked up in uh, the, the reading that JP did. Uh, it's a composite quotation. It's drawn from Exodus 23:20, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and yes, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. But all texts that in early Judaism were associated with an Elijah figure who was to come to prepare the way for the age of salvation. Now, the words from Exodus, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, are addressed to Israel in the wilderness, while the rest of the quotation refers to one who announces the coming of God himself in salvation and judgment. And according to Isaiah, the wilderness is the place where the way is to be prepared for the coming of God. As in the Exodus, the wilderness is the place where God would once again act to deliver his people. And John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness. Mark clearly identifying John as the messenger, the voice of one crying out, this Elijah-like figure. And lest we be in any doubt, Mark makes it perfectly clear in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The details of John's dress and diet mark him out as a man of the wilderness. But And the garment of camel's hair, well, that's an indication that he was a prophet, something we know actually from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 4. And the reference to the leather belt, that's an almost exact echo of the description of Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8, suggesting again that John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet, sent to call Israel to repent before what Scripture calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so John appears, this Elijah-like figure, in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And friends, what this means is that God's hour has struck. The time is fulfilled. God is on the move. God is on his way. The ancient scriptures are being fulfilled. Now, the call to repent may sound somewhat strange to our ears, but it was not at all strange to Jewish ears in the first century. John's call to repentance was not really unusual. It was a common enough prophetic demand. But his message is unusual in that he appears to be offering forgiveness without sacrifice being offered in the temple, remission of sins without any connection to the whole sacrificial system in Jerusalem, all of which really looks ahead to the replacement of the temple and the Jewish system, looks ahead to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Well, in any case, the people of Israel recognize John as bringing a word from the Lord. And they recognize their own deep need. They sense their own deep need. And they all go out to him to be baptized, confessing their sins. And notice verse 5. All the country of Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him. And this isn't mere hyperbole. Verse 5 indicates that John accomplished his purpose in preparing the people 
for the coming of God. So in summary, John's task was to make a road for God. His method was by preaching. And his preaching was an uncompromising call to men and women to prepare themselves for the divine coming. Now, it's an old cliche, but a good one, and it bears asking. If you knew for a certainty that you would face God's judgment very soon, what would you do in the short time before then? What would you do? Would you amend your life? Would you turn from the things that fall short of God's highest and best for you? Would you not only confess your sins, but seek to forsake them? This is a question that's been asked throughout the history of the church, really. One uh, example of this is Jonathan Edwards. I think some of you probably know his name. Edwards was the pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1730s, 1740s, whose preaching, along with that of George Whitfield, was really used by God to touch off that period in American history known as the Great Awakening, a great movement of the Spirit of God across New England and beyond, when many were, were brought to conviction and many were brought to saving faith in Christ. When Edwards was a young man, he drew up a list of resolutions. Here's how I want to live my life. And he would read through these resolutions on a regular basis. And resolution number seven was this, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do were at the last hour of my life. If you knew for certainty that you would face God's judgment very soon, what would you do in the short time before then? That's the kind of response that John the Baptist's preaching aimed at. To prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah Jesus, John called them to come through the waters of baptism and be free. And he still issues that call. We are, all of us, to leave behind the world of sin in which we so often live, the world of folly, of rebelling against the living God. Israel in the first century and you and I today often look in the wrong direction, we go in the wrong direction. But it's time, today God says, to turn around and go the right way. That's what repentance means. Said another way, it's time to stop dreaming and wake up to God's reality. Why? Because one more powerful than John is coming. One more powerful than John has come. One greater, one so far above John that he's not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of this greater one's sandals. Now, that's a strange uh, expression until you understand that the action of unfastening sandals was regarded by the Jews as the lowest and most menial of all the tasks performed by a slave. In fact, it's said in the Talmud that a disciple must do for his teacher everything that a slave will do for his master, except this one thing. But John says, you know, I'm not worthy to do even that thing for my successor, which simply emphasizes the vast superiority of this coming one. So notice that John didn't only baptize. He didn't only call for repentance. He proclaimed that there was a stronger one coming. And this stronger one, John tells us, this more powerful one, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit as a cleansing agent parallel to water baptism. The Spirit is the agent of ultimate cleansing from sin, a baptism with the power of God. In other words, as we now know, of course, 
It's through Jesus' life and death that we receive the baptism of the Spirit, the salvation and deliverance promised for the new age, power for living in this world. Now let's take a step back for a moment. All of the things we've talked about so far, I think, imply three things. Okay, three things. Remember what John the Baptist is doing. He's announcing the coming of, of God, the coming of God. That's what was expected in those verses from Malachi and Isaiah and Exodus. He's announcing the coming near of God's rule in the person of his son. And that tells us that the coming near of God's dominion, God's rule, has to be announced. That was true then, and it's true today. Why does it have to be announced? Well, it has to be announced because its appearance in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah is simply not evident to everyone. The coming near of God's rule has to be announced. Now, I'm sure you know that each of the four Gospels contains a commission. A commission by Jesus to his followers to make more followers, to proclaim his name, to bear witness to him in the resurrection. And that's what the book of Acts is largely about, the expansion of the church, and largely by word of mouth. And yes, we're speaking about the task of evangelism, of telling the good news to others. Theologian Wayne Grudem has said that the evangelistic work of declaring the gospel is the primary ministry that the church has toward the world. And friends, now is the time to speak to our generation, to bear witness to Jesus and the resurrection, to declare the coming near of God's dominion, God's rule in the person of Christ, has to be announced. John the Baptist was the first one to announce it, but that duty to announce continues on into our day. Now, I know that evangelism sometimes uh, creates fear in people. Uh, we're afraid of what people might, how people might react to us when we, when we do that. Uh, but I think something from Scripture itself helps us. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ crucified, that message is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But God made it that way. God made it that way. He knows it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So we shouldn't be surprised by the kind of reception we sometimes get. But the gospel, Paul tells us also in Romans, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There may be people who are stumble, they stumble about it, we get ridiculed about it, but there are people who will believe because the gospel is the power of God. I'll be forever grateful to a young man who approached me on a college campus. I didn't know this guy from, from a hole in the wall. And uh, he approached me, asked me some questions, asked me if I had time to talk, and I said, well, okay, sure. I didn't want to disappoint him. Uh, and he shared the gospel with me. Now, I'd never heard it before, not really. And uh, it was all new. And uh, there was some follow-up after that. And about nine months later, I gave my life to Christ. This kind of thing still goes on. You know, sometimes in, in New York City and other cities in, in uh, the United States, particularly in the summer, uh, the Ministry of Jews for Jesus kind of blankets the city, right? They, they hand out these very creative little leaflets, kind of gospel tracts almost. And I think the reason they do that is because the founder of Jews for Jesus, Moshe Rosen, was reached on a street corner for Christ by somebody who was doing that very thing many years ago. Now, that's a, that's a method of evangelism. Go and tell them. But there's another method also we see in the New Testament in 1 Peter. And that is that by living such distinctively Christian lives, 
unbelievers will be forced almost to ask questions of us. What's the reason you're like this? What's the reason for the hope you have? And we have a yet another opportunity to speak a word for Christ. Now, I'm not a pastor. I've never been a pastor. I spent years in the city practicing law, and then I was, uh, uh, worked at Prudential Financial until I retired recently. Uh, and I know that the office is not always the, a great platform uh, for doing evangelism, but there are things that can be done in an office as well, and I've done them all. And uh, it's not necessarily you can walk people through the four spiritual laws or something like that, but there's just an opportunity to be your, your real self. They always talk about bring your real self to the office. I know what they mean by that, but my real self is this follower of Christ. And people will ask me how my weekend was or, or, or something. And I'll tell them about my weekend. I'll tell them about what happened on Sunday. Um, people talk to me about all kinds of things at the office. And I have an opportunity, I think we all do, to say something. It may not be the whole gospel message. But people are in process, and we can help them move along. At least they realize that, well, I thought Christianity was for idiots. Mark doesn't seem to be an idiot. Maybe I'm wrong about that one. Um, you know, and, and it helps people move along the course, and maybe they'll come to faith in Christ. Who knows? But there is the opportunity to do evangelism all the time, pretty much. And I think that's, that's the great opportunity we have. And friends, now is the time. Not next year, not some year, you know, some other time. Now is the time to bear witness to Jesus and the gospel. Now is the time to speak to our generation. So that's, I think, the first implication of what we've said so far. The second implication is that in order to respond appropriately to the coming near of God's rule in the person of his Son, you have to turn around or turn back. You have to repent. That's sort of a non-negotiable. That was the call of John the Baptist. It was also the early preaching of Jesus. Now, I know you don't have this verse in front of you, but we ended at verse 13. But if you look at verse 15 of Mark, after John is arrested, Jesus goes into Galilee preaching about the kingdom of God and saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance was the call of John the Baptist. It was also the call of Christ himself. And it is the appropriate response to the coming near of God's rule, the inbreaking of his rule. Third implication, not only must we leave behind past practices and past orientations, we have to face the future in the days ahead in a new way. You have to believe the gospel, the good news about the inbreaking of God's rule, the coming of his son. Now, why is that? Why do you have to believe? Well, because without faith, without belief, the rule of God may come. It has come but you'll get no personal benefit or help from that coming. In other words, you have to respond to the coming of God as an individual. And we see this happening as Mark's gospel unfolds with the calling of individuals, often by name, to discipleship. So John prepared the people for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And now let's look at verses 9 through 13, the preparation of of Jesus himself. Just look at 9 through 11 right now. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
As former Anglican Bishop Tom Wright has said, the whole Christian gospel could be summed up right here. He writes, When the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, He says to us what He said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. God sees you not as you are in yourself, but as you are in Jesus Christ. Now, it sometimes seems impossible, especially if you've never had this kind of support from your earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at you, a baptized and believing Christian, and says, you are my beloved child. Now, this is true for one very simple but very profound reason. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah represents his people. He represents us. So in some sense, then, what's true of him is true of us. And what God says to Jesus, he says to us. And friends, we all need to hear these words of love and acceptance as addressed to us. And let those words change us and mold us to be the people God wishes us to be. Now we're told in verse 1 that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, which simply means the Anointed One. And verses 9 through 11 tell how Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, marked out in a unique way as God's Son. But notice verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Seeing the heavens opening or being torn open and the Spirit descending is what Jesus alone saw. As someone once said, it's almost as if an invisible curtain had been pulled back and Jesus was standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. And friends, this is a reminder to us that the unseen world is real. The unseen world is real. Now, there's a great illustration of this in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we're told that the king of Syria was making war on Israel. But the king of Israel was warned by Elisha, the prophet, of the Syrians' plans, and so escaped attack more than once. Well, the king of Syria was troubled by this. He thinks men in his own army or traitors are giving his plans away. Uh, but he's told, no, no, king, it's not that. It's Elisha the prophet who knows your plans. And so the king wants to find and seize Elisha, and he learns where he is. Elisha is in the city of Dothan. And the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army and surrounded the city at night. When Elisha's servant rose early in the morning and went out, he saw the Syrian army all around the city. And he said to Elisha, he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, what's he talking about? The servant doesn't see anybody but the Syrian army. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then the scripture says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The army of the Lord of hosts surrounded Elisha and his servant, protecting them from the Syrians. The unseen world is real. 
Now the psalmist also acknowledges and shows an awareness of the unseen world. Now think about this, when he encourages the angels in Psalm 148, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. The unseen world is real. And a good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality even when we can't see it. Sometimes the curtain is drawn back and we see or hear what's really going on. But most of the time, we walk by faith, not by sight. But make no mistake, the unseen world is real. And so Jesus is baptized, he is anointed, he is empowered by the Spirit, he hears the words of divine approval, and then what? Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, driven to a place and a time, an extended time of testing. Notice the text again. It's the Spirit who casts Jesus into the wilderness, where he is endangered by wild animals and by a powerful adversary. Friends, Jesus was and is truly human, not immune to real temptations. In the wilderness, he is endangered wild animals that often have an association with the demonic and a powerful adversary. But notice something else. The angels are there too. And here I think it's important to remember that times of trial involve both danger and assistance. There are wild animals in the wilderness, yes, but there are also angels. We have a powerful adversary, yes, but there are also angels. And friends, in the hour of need, in times of testing and great difficulty, God does not abandon us, but provides us with extra help, extra sustenance, extra strength, so that we can endure, so that we can persevere. It's possible that God may put each one of us to the test this year, but we can be assured that he will provide us with the resources we need to persevere. At this point then, Jesus is now ready to embark upon his public ministry as it unfolds in the remainder of this gospel. He has been baptized, he has heard the words of divine divine approval, he's been empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, he's faced great temptation, he's now ready to begin his public ministry. And friends, as you go forward during the remainder of this year to fulfill your calling, your vocation, whatever it is, you can be assured of several things. First, God's love for you. Second, his watchful care over you. And third, his provision for you every step of the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you'd help us to continue to think through what this passage means. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our own calling to speak a word for Christ as we have opportunity, to bear witness to Him. Lord, we pray that Your will would be accomplished in our lives. We pray that Your will would be accomplished in this church. For Jesus' sake and in His name, Amen.